What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Everybody and welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here at the home studio, Pond City Market, Atlanta. But this was one of the very few uh, remote sessions that I do from time to time, and this is the first one that came through an actual like uh, PR agency. So this wasn't a, a personal hookup or a connection like that, but a, a real deal PR agency for the movies got in touch and said that they had Mr. Jonathan Ames available for me. And I jumped at it because I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Ames. He is the creator and writer of the great HBO series Bored to Death that I love so much uh, over its three seasons. And he's a, a great writer of fiction books and the creator of Blunt Talk, the great show with Patrick Stewart. And for my money, Jonathan is just one of the great odd ducks of the world. And I say that with all uh, flattery and uh, and glowing love. I think it's it's a wonderful thing to be um, sort of one of the great weirdos of the world. So that's a high compliment coming from me. And Jonathan's favorite movie is, uh, or his favorite pick at least, was Fat City, uh, the 1972 John Huston film, sort of a, a neo-noir boxing pick starring Jeff Bridges and Stacey Keach. That's a the the guy who played coach on Cheers has a great role in it, and it's if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it. Uh, it's really uh, a, a '70s movie in all the best ways. Very real, uh, almost documentary like. Um, doesn't have a conventional sort of Hollywood narrative. It's just very much a slice of life 
about these down-on-their-luck, uh, kind of washed-up alcoholics and uh, boxers who had seen their better day, and a, a young Jeff Bridges who was a boxer who will never see his good days in the ring. And uh, you sort of peek in on this life. It kind of reminded me of the movie Barfly and the writings of Charles Bukowski. So check it out if you haven't, and uh, be sure to listen all the way through because I was lucky enough to get Mr. Ames to do one of his Harry calls. If you don't know what a Harry call is, just listen. So here's Jonathan Ames on Fat City. Jonathan? Yes, hello. Can, can you hear me? <laughs> yes, I, I can hear you. <laughs> Good. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but we actually have met before. Okay, where, where, uh, did, where did we meet? A couple of years ago at the Max Fun Con at Lake Arrowhead. Oh, yeah. We, we played softball together and then hung out at, at the Hodgman Cabin Hang. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I didn't make the connection at all, but that was a, that was a fun weekend. Yeah, it really was. Uh, if you could see me, you might remember. But uh, anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. I, I should have done a, a more proper Googling than my memory. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't. Um, I but that, no need. I, I really enjoyed that thing. And then um, Jesse Thorne is such a good guy. You know, yeah, that, that's he sure a, is. He's the one that invited me and all that. Yeah, and I um, after that weekend when you you told that great story for the uh for the risk mm-hmm. podcast thing mm-hmm. and that's where i heard the harry call for the first time and i actually practiced that for about a month after i left and uh it's really something else to try and learn <clears throat> that um, thing i can't no one's i've ever known has been able to do it even the the kids i grew up with they didn't have the sound that i have I mean, I could try it on the podcast at some point, but it's going (laughs) to, I'll have to warn the engineer here (laughs) or the producer because, you know, it it could, it's really loud. Well, yeah, maybe we can close with it. Yeah, yeah. But um, it it is interesting, though. I think I got the essence of what you were doing, Mm -hmm. which is a very strange thing, uh, but (laughs) I was nowhere near um, the volume or depth at all. So don't worry. Oh, well, no, I'd be great if someone could learn how to do it because so many people have asked me, how do you do it? And I have that that double throttle sound or two tones going on. So sometimes when musicians uh-huh. have heard me, they're very intrigued um, because yeah, it's like sure. something from like an indigenous people. Yeah, uh, like the throat singing. Yeah, it's a, it's a uh-huh. real yodel of sorts. Yeah. But, well, you know, <laughs> then the whole story is it's a cry for help, though. It's a you know, right. I don't know. Are are we recording now or no? Oh, we are yeah, recording. We're, we're this recording. Is, oh, this is part of the podcast. I'll um, just I'll find an entry point that makes sense. But uh, I, I don't do like a formal like here I am with Jonathan Ames thing. Right. Because what I could explain, you know, before I do the sound a little bit is the origin of the sound. I, I could do the gentle version, um, which was. <laughs> I, not unlike this moment, which is sort of interesting, I'm at a table with headphones on. This is what's interesting. And in the fourth grade, I was at a table with headphones on learning how to read. It was called SRA at the time. And you would wear mm-hmm. these big blue headphones. And the boy across from me named Jonathan Fat Eater, uh, his last name was E-D-E-R. It wasn't Eater, but he was a little bit chubby. 
And out of the blue, he took off his headphones and went, like that, this little gentle <laughs> purr, like a like right from his Buddha belly, and yeah. struck me right in my third eye or something. And I took off my headphones. And I said, "Make that sound again." And that became the you know the the you know the beginning or the origin of the Harry call. And that became a language that he and I used with this other boy named Francis Manziano, and we called it going hairy because in the early seventies, uh -huh. going hairy was going crazy. Because uh, of hippies, and we would communicate like that, going <laughs> we would call each other gee. So anyway, later at the end of uh, this podcast, I could do the hairy call, which was the sound we would make when calling for help. And usually, Fat Eater would come to our protection. Francis or Mansi and I would be attacked by more normal children. Fat Eater would come running over. And as the son of a chiropractor, he knew how the human body was constructed, and he would swipe uh -huh. kids in the ankle with a kick. They would topple over. Anyway, I'm I'm rambling immediately, so I apologize. <laughs> no, I love it. That's uh, I mean, this is we'll get to Fat City later, but this <laughs> is a show where we just sort of uh, discover what makes Jonathan Ames tick. So this is all great. Mm -hmm. uh, what makes me tick? <laughs> a lot of nerves, <laughs> which I'm trying to meditate away. But then they come back. It's almost tidal. I have like. Uh, you know, the tides of nerves, anxiety, uh, yeah. fear, confusion, all the things that make other people tick as well. Well, you're in Los Angeles now, though, right? Didn't you mm -hmm. move from New York? I did. I moved here about uh, three and a half years ago now. Do you like yeah. it? Uh, I do. I, um, I'm i 54. I was born in New York so and then grew up outside the city about 20, 30 minutes away in New Jersey. And mm -hmm. so I'd been in New York 50 years, and of course I loved the city, and and it was so important to me. But I think I had sort of kind of gotten into a rut, kind of like a, you know, a metal ball and a pinball machine that was following the same route all the time. And uh -huh. I think it's good for the brain as it ages uh, to have change. And so L.A. has been like a new geography, a new weather, new people, new things to learn. And so maybe it's going to, you know, delay my dementia by six months, all this activity. <laughs> Where did you end up in Los Angeles? What part? Uh, I'm in a section called Franklin Hills. It's right near uh -huh. Los Feliz and Silver yeah. Lake. And I, I knew my arrival meant that ge the gentrification was complete, you know, that right. if I <laughs> yeah. was there, what, uh -huh. it was, you know, no longer cool. But I, I think it, but it's still, it's it's a really lovely uh, part of town to live in. And I moved there originally uh, in a very Los Angeles way to be near the five highway because I, I moved right. out here for uh, the TV show I created, Blunt Talk. And so mm -hmm. I needed to be near that particular highway to drive to the studio where we where we were shooting, which was uh, east of north and east of Los Angeles in a town called Santa Clarita. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I lived um, actually in Los Feliz, mm -hmm. and then I lived in New Jersey, just about twenty five miles from where you grew up. Uh, I lived in Bernardsville, if you've ever heard of that. I, I have. Is that that's very pretty, isn't it? Is that like woodsy Bernardsville? And is that near? It is like, very woodsy. Like the horse country sort of over uh -huh. there. It almost looks like Vermont. Uh, yeah, like Morristown is kind of in the middle of where you mm -hmm. lived and where I lived. Yeah, I yeah, I was in Oakland, Bergen County. Uh so very close to the New York State border and Suffern, New York. 
suffering right. New York. <laughs> I should, I should, if I write some fiction, I should <clears throat> name a town called Suffering New York. <laughs> now, what did, uh, what was your childhood like as, as far as movies are concerned? Were you, were you really into movies and television growing up? Oh, oh yeah. Um, I mean, every night in front of the TV, uh, I suddenly just flashed now to Gilligan's Island and I used to memorize mm-hmm. the schedule but yeah, TV back then was probably like Gilligan's Island, All in the Family, Maud, sure. Nash, Batman. Oh yeah, uh-huh. uh, Star Trek reruns. Um, uh, oh, Sanford and Son, loved that show. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, movies of my seventies youth: uh, Young Frankenstein, Jaws, Animal House. Um, my mother oddly took me to like a film early in life. I, I don't know if she was like something was going on, and she took me to Walkabout, that that Australian film that was oh yeah very moving. Um, and yeah, so movies and TV. But I, I was always a books kid. Um, but going to the movies was a big treat. Um, you know, going to the movie theater, especially you know once you became a teenager, and, and the movie theater was right next to the video arcade um right were you writing when you were younger when you were a teenager uh i began to write i think it was my sophomore year in high school Uh, my english teacher took an interest in me and i was on the soccer team and i sprained my ankle and Mm -hmm. i but i still had to go around with the team and she asked me to or suggested i write about the games and i started writing for the local paper and Maybe I like I remember getting into it. Like I had a flair for it. I would describe the weather and the drama of the of the contests. I was a big sports fan back then and I still am and would read the sports pages all the time. And then and then I think I took a creative writing class and then she got me involved in the newspaper. And yeah, so everything sort of began for me my sophomore year in high school. And and I think around that time I started reading Kurt Vonnegut mm-hmm. and um and that just sort of really opened up my eyes to the different things books could do and be sort of outrageous. And and then from Vonnegut, I went to Hunter Thompson. And then from Hunter Thompson, I went to Jack Kerouac. And by the time I hit Kerouac at like age 17, I was like, I want to be a writer. This is romantic. Yeah. Yeah, that first teacher can really make a big difference. Oh, what a do you, difference. Do you remember that teacher? Oh, yeah. Her name was Ann Peters. And I remember she, uh, in my yearbook, wrote, um, I look forward to receiving my copy of your first signed novel. And so, and she wrote that in 1982. And then, actually, oh my gosh, it wasn't that long later, or that's not very good English. <laughs> um, <laughs> my first novel came out in 1989 when I was 25. Oh, wow. uh, mm-hmm. I Passed Like Night. And uh, and I got her a copy and signed it. And then later, I think uh, she came to a reading of mine, maybe from my novel The Extra Man in 1998. And oh, just great. very appreciative of, I mean, that's, I mean, teaching is so important. You know, just that little bit of encouragement, I mean, changed my whole uh-huh. life. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. When it comes to adaptations, now you've had a couple... Have you had two of your books made into movies now? Yes, uh, The Extra Man and Uh You Were Never Really Here. 
Well, I watched that yesterday. You were never really here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent me a screener, and uh, I want to talk about getting your stuff adapted, but I do want to focus on that movie for a sec because, sure. man, what what a uh, what a gut punch of a film uh, yeah. that Lynn Ramsey made. Oh uh, yeah, she. It's a real tour de force. I mean, if like maybe it's an overused word, but it's truly cinematic. I mean, you, you know, yeah. it's like there's no, there's no. I mean, I'm sure there's conventional coverage of scenes, you know, but mm-hmm. it, it just feels like there was thought behind every shot, uh, every editing choice, you, you know, that it was truly like a. Um, I, I hate to, I don't know what the word is like crafted artisanal. Um, she, she's a, just an, you know, I remember I, I, well, we had corresponded for about two years. Um, she adapted mm-hmm. my book, which I also wanted to be a gut punch, a, t- a page turner. And the, the new, the book is out now for the first time properly in the States. Um, she got it. I mean, there's a whole long history because it had come out in France and was very, popular in France because it was so noir, the book. Um, And a French producer had read the reviews in France, read the book in French, and sent it to Lynn Ramsey. And and then Lynn wanted to do it. The funny thing about it is a year before, I had sent the book to my then agent. He's no longer my agent. And I said, I Mm -hmm. think there's a movie in this. And he never really got back to me. And then a year (laughs) later, Lynn Ramsey wants to do it. And who's her agent? My agent. No and way. Uh, suddenly he was very involved, but then right. he stopped being my agent. But anyway, yeah, Lynn and I um, corresponded about, she would send me drafts of the script for about two years and I would send her notes. And mostly I was just, you know, do your thing. And, you know, but it was following very closely to the book. The, uh-huh. the ultimate film, uh, the ending changes somewhat. I had sent her the beginning of my sequel, which I'm writing at the moment. Um, and that sort of influenced her ending a little bit, which is different from the ending of my book. But, um, anyway, I lost my train of thought, but the, but one of the things I conveyed to her was that I, I I wanted, I hope that the movie would have the feeling of a page turner, just sort of Mm -hmm. compulsive and, and propulsive and, uh, and then, and also be an entertainment you know, which I think she was intrigued by too, like in the Graham Greene sense, that even as right. artful and as cinematic as it is, that it's also an entertainment that you're you're gripped. Oh, it was gripping. Um, it, it, I, I loved it. I mean, it doesn't. Ha- it doesn't. I think it w- would have followed a more conventional sort of uh, movie plot line. It wouldn't have been as interesting. Uh, the way it unfolds is just very organic, and you feel like you're just sort of peeking in on these events that happen and while it is uh, just gut-wrenchingly violent she doesn't show a lot of this stuff like right in front of your face it was really I thought the way she handled it was even more impactful um, especially the scene when when Joaquin Phoenix goes to the the uh, the the rich man's house where this uh, where the where the girls are being taken advantage of and you see the um, the security footage angles, mm-hmm. everything is just sort of right off screen. Like you see a hammer swinging or you see legs uh, from a what is clearly a, a dead body uh, on screen, but you never see the actual 
violence uh, taking place. And I just thought that was a really kind of a cool way to handle that. Yeah, uh, I thought I thought she handled the violence um, really well. I mean, one of I originally wrote this in 2013. And then this summer, I expanded the book by about 20 pages. And so from 2013 to 2017, I mean, I initially wrote the book um, because of my long fascination with genre and pulp novels mm -hmm. and page turners and really wanting to try my hand at it. I'm a huge fan of the writer Richard Stark, which is a pseudonym for Donald Westlake. A Westlake uh, wrote a, about 100 novels. He wrote so many novels that he needed pseudonyms so that he wasn't competing with himself, especially in the beginning in the you know, late 50s, early 60s, into the early 70s. So he, he had more than one name, so he could put out two or three books a year. But the, oh, Star wow. the Stark novels are all about a criminal named Parker, which has led to movies also, uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin, uh -huh. uh, Payback with Mel Gibson, and then recently Jason Statham uh, played Parker. I, um, I, anyway, but um, uh, so... Again, losing my train of thought, but oh, so then though, as the world has gotten crazier and crazier, and it's always been crazy, I was like, shoot, I've put more violence out into the world. Do I feel okay about this? And it's an it's an entertainment, and also this guy's on maybe the right side of things. He's trying to yeah. help children, you, you know, and and then but and then the same thing with the film. Okay, more violence in a violent world, but I think she did it in a way where, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel gratuitous or it's not, I don't know, I don't hope it doesn't hurt the audience, but they're sort of told a violent tale of, of, of a tormented hero and trying to protect an innocent. Um, so... Yeah, the how to deal with violence, and I'm writing a sequel too, and uh, and it, but again, I th there's a a theme of redemption, so I'm not doing mm -hmm. it just to kind of you know uh, be a sort of pornographic with violence. No, not not at all. I mean, the way it came through, I can't wait. I'm glad the book's being released here in a major way too, because I can't wait to read it, but. I mean, the way she handled it was was pitch perfect to me. The way it unfolded and him, uh, I mean, when you're dealing with child sex trafficking, and then this very wounded man who clearly has, has suffered abuse at his own hand and then PTSD from the war, uh, you really root for this guy to grab that hammer and take care of business, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so he's definitely on the right side of things. I, I I wouldn't worry about that at all. I thought I thought it was just a really good movie, very affecting and. I could see another version of this movie, like a more Hollywood version of this movie that I didn't care for. But uh, the way she did it was just so stark and quiet, not a ton of dialogue. And it just really unfolded very organically. And she didn't spoon feed anything. It was just a really a match made in heaven, I think, to collaborate with her on that. Oh, yeah. I was, um, you know, I was thrilled when I found out she was interested and and then I, I watched all her movies, Ratcatcher, Morvan, Caller. Yeah, uh, you know, she's so good. We need to talk about Kevin. Um, and, you know, just all very strong, distinctive, strange. Um, and, uh, you, you know, just um, uh, very unique. This is her voice. And, and, yeah, I started to say earlier, my mind's 
zipping around like a like a gnat. But um, even if my voice doesn't sound like that, but when we <laughs> we had corresponded for about two years, she was mostly in Greece or England, and I was wherever I was. And then we met about ten days before they were shooting. Um, I was able to come to New York, and uh, she had just found out that they weren't going to be using film, that it was going to be digital. And she was very upset. And she said, I'm a filmmaker. And, uh-huh. you know, and at the same time, you know, things have advanced so far with, you know, digital cameras that ultimately I think she is very happy with what she was able to get. Uh, and mm. the the DP, uh, Thomas Townend, a really sweet guy, I mean, he he did a beautiful job. You know, the two of them were like, you know, obviously in a deep collaboration for him to deliver the lighting and the, you know, the, the sense of New York that she wanted. Um, and then, and she also brought like sort of, she hadn't spent barely any time in New York in her life. So she kind of brought this, uh, I think, a fresh eye to the city and mm-hmm. and and found elements of the city that to me were somewhat reminiscent of like seventies films, which may have informed her sense of New York, you know, like whether it be yeah. uh, French Connection or you know, uh, uh, that's the only one I'm coming up with. But all those great Taxi Driver, si- maybe too, know, yeah, and and Sidney Lumet films, and mm-hmm. um, but but yeah, she you know she's an artist. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect, whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. 
Well, we can move on to Fat City now, which was <laughs> your pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the listeners out there, this is from 1972, uh, directed by the great John Huston, one of his later films, and written by Leonard Gardner uh, based upon his book. Uh, did you come to this through the book at first? Um, I'm trying to, you know, I and I got the email, and I don't know if the question was your favorite movie of all time or... And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then I happened to look up at, you know, the bookshelf, and I saw Fat City, and I was just like, I, I want to watch that movie again. And I just remember really loving it. And I, I wa- only watched it for the first time maybe two years or so ago. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And uh, and I, and I, my mind is unclear if I read the book first and then watched the movie. Um and then for I'm doing another podcast in a week or so, and I got the email about that podcast right around the same time, but it's a book one saying, choose your favorite book. I'm like, oh, my God, this is very hard. There's so many good books and so many good movies. So I'm like, you yeah. know what? I'll do Fat City. So I'm rereading Fat City and watched Fat City again. And I watched it last night. I had some technical difficulties. I'm very technophobic. It was amazing that I was able to watch it, to be honest. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love the film. I, 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 each character is so beautifully drawn. And I think the biggest thing that, well, I love Stacy Keach. I've had him in yeah, both my TV shows, uh, Bored to Death and Blunt Talk. Uh-huh. A lot of people didn't see Blunt Talk, but he, he, um, I gave him this prolonged, uh, monologue or inquisition of Patrick Stewart at the end of our second season, which was very much my homage to the boardroom scene in Network uh, when um, uh, uh, Peter Finch is being mm-hmm. sort of chewed out by, I think it's Ned Beatty. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm getting that right. But uh, anyway, I love Stacy Keach. This is the young Stacy Keach. And then Susan Tyrell, it's like, I don't, she may only be on screen like 20 minutes, but it's such a vivid 20 minutes and her voice and, and she's like this noble drunk and I just love her. I mean, I, it probably shows the codependent Al-Anon person in me, but I just, and I, you know, so I kind of, um, and the book itself is like James Joyce. And I don't, I, I think I'd like to meet Leonard Gardner. He's never written another novel, but he went on to work in television. But the book Fat City is is Joycean, like kind of like Dubliners. It it gets inside the lives of all these characters in this town of Stockton, California, in mm-hmm. such a touching, intimate, beautiful way, and weaves them all together around you know around this boxer played by Stacy Keach, uh, Billy Tully. Um, and I just think it's a fantastic, fantastic movie. And, and, and I want to ask you a question, but I was thinking about, for me, Fat City is like something out of James Joyce. And then I thought it was interesting that John Huston should end his career. I think it was, is it called the, the dead, uh, which was a, yeah, a, I think a so. Joyce story from Dubliners. So, um, anyway, that's my own little connection that he, that he would be drawn to these, you know, just incredible portraits of, of human beings, which I think his, you know, his filmography reflects. But what, what do you think of Fat City? Have you watched it recently or watched it again for this? Or 
Well, it, I watched it yesterday, and it was the first time I had seen it. So, oh, cool. Uh, I, yeah, I appreciate you turning me on to this. It was, it was so great. I mean, it was just a quintessential 1970s movie in, in all the best ways uh, in that it was just so real. There's no pretension or, I mean, it doesn't even feel like you're watching a movie, really. You know, it's just about these real people who are all just... Uh, kind of desperate, but also all of them are already kind of washed up, whether or not Stacy Keach is this boxer. Well, I was about to say former boxer, but he tries to revive his career and gets a little taste of victory. But even the man he beats uh, when he come in his comeback fight is uh, Sixto Rodriguez in real life is a man who, you know, we learned before the fight is ailing uh, when he urinates blood. Right. Um, so, so that victory isn't even super sweet, you know, it was just kind of a, a downer in all the right ways, but such a beautiful film at the same time. Yeah. I mean, like at the end of the fight when, you know, Billy Tully, Stacey Keach has won, he's so punch drunk. He says, yeah, did I get knocked out? So it, it, Uh and it was funny watching it again. I, I, I had thought he'd lost the fight, You, you know, but then I said, oh my God, he wins it. But it's still like a loss because he only gets a hundred bucks. His brains yeah. have been scrambled, and you know, and like you said, it's like real life. I mean, the dialogue is both fantastic and natural. You know, the things that come out of Oma Susan Tyrell's mouth. You know, there's just uh-huh. wisdom and intelligence about the human condition. I was like writing down some of the lines, and um, but there's also great. Uh, cinematography in it, very subtle stuff. Like at the end of the, at the end of the fight when they're in the corridor, you know, and he's Billy's mm-hmm. with his trainer, and they walk out, and then you wait one second, you're in the empty hallway, and then there comes his opponent, Lucero, who's come up from Mexico. He's almost dressed like a hitman, you know, sort of dressed yeah. beautifully, even though inside, you know, he's pissing blood, and he's just this guy. He came up to make his hundred dollars. You know, he arrived on a bus. And so the last shot is him just sort of walking nobly and handsomely down this darkened hallway. Or like a little touch I noticed when Stacy Keach sort of begins his romance with Susan Tyrell at the uh-huh. bar and yeah. and her hair is all matted and yet she's sort of beautiful in her scratchy voice, you know, and and then and the back of her dress is open. You know, Uh you're just very aware of it and you see her shoulders. And then when they leave together, just as they leave, you know, he zips it up. Now, I don't know if this was an accident of wardrobe or if John Huston was like, as you leave, zip it up, or if that's something Stacey Keach did. But at the same time, it was like a beautiful shot. Um, And and there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, I thought, you know, as, as much as it felt like real life, it wasn't like a documentary there was there was artfulness and there was also yeah. just the pacing where you you know like you spend 30 seconds to a minute with Lucero his opponent like lying on a sort of dreary hotel bed sort of rubbing his stomach waiting to you know for the the fight that night um but just what you're talking about like it's all about the people are washed up before you know what I mean before they even get yeah. going. Even the Jeff Bridges character. I mean, it's incredible yeah. cast though. <laughs> Stacy Keach, Susan Tyrell, Jeff Bridges, um, 
the guy who played coach in Cheers, yeah. you know, who's so um, incredibly funny in this. He loves his boxers. One of the things that comes across more in the book and maybe a little bit in the film is this guy loves his boxers. He, he actually is not a full-time professional trainer. He, he's got a job driving a forklift, you know, and he just trains mm -hmm. guys at night at the gym or on the weekends, is that he's endangering these people's lives with his own delusions of what they could do, you know, and you see how Jeff Bridges is getting battered or, you know, what's and yet he loves them too, though, you know, like he when he and Billy are in the middle of the road, when Billy's like, $100, you know, and he gets uh -huh. out of the car, you see Ruben's love for his fighters. Um, yeah, and they're, they're also optimistic, too. I think that's what I loved about it is, um, I mean, to a character, Jeff Bridges, his uh, his soon-to-be wife, Candy Clark, Ruben the trainer, um, Stacy Keach trying to make the comeback, like, they're all optimistic for their future, as whether or not they're drunks or washed up already in this sort of, uh, you know, working with migrant workers in the field in Stockton. And, you know, as, as a, as a viewer, you're thinking, God, these people are, are going nowhere. They've all seen their best days, even Jeff Bridges, even though he's barely getting started, but they all think that the best lies ahead, which is a really interesting thing. Yeah. Well, it's, kind of the human condition, you know, we're all yeah. sort of suffering on a daily basis with our anxieties and our, it's so difficult to navigate being a human being and there's very little security in it. You know, we, we, we have our husbands and wives and friends, but everything's so incredibly fragile and so finite. But, um, but at the same time, we, you know, we beat on, like the end of the Great Gatsby, would be, we beat on boats against yeah. the current, you know, and that's what all these people are doing. And at the end dialogue, and I remember the first time I saw the film, I thought the film ended abruptly or oddly, but then this mm -hmm. time I really loved the ending. Um, and so, uh, you know, Billy Tully, Stacey Keach, and uh, Ernie Munger, Jeff Bridges, very young Jeff Bridges, are in some kind of cafeteria, I think in yeah. in Stockton, and the kind of locations, you know, real locations that don't exist anymore. You know, whatever America crumbling in the early 70s, it's crumbling in different ways now, but just these kind of old, beautiful places, the kind of, the sort of places, the only places I've seen where they still exist, but I don't, I tend to be like a New York, Los Angeles I don't know, like a hummingbird that only goes to those two places. But in Memphis, when I was in Memphis years ago, there was a sense for me of older America, these old kind of places. And actually, Los Angeles has a fair amount of them. But so anyway, they're at that counter, and there's sort of an ancient man that has poured them two coffees, you know? Uh -huh. yeah. And he almost looks skeletal, but there's a sort of... Uh, enlightened quality to him and then stacy keach is looking at him and and he says to jeff bridges can you imagine waking up being that guy and then he goes what a waste and goes and then i wrote down the line before you get rolling your life makes a beeline for the drain and <laughs> such and, a good line and then he's looking at this ancient you know guy who's behind this kind of greasy counter you know this sort of beneficent 85 year old i don't know if he's Chinese man. It was hard to tell. And I, I'm sure it was someone from actually Stockton, not an actor, you know, just an incredible face, like something out of Diane Arbus. And then 
And then Jeff Bridges nods and goes, but maybe he's happy. And and then, you know, I thought that sort of, you know what I mean? Like you put yourself in someone else's shoes and we're all making a beeline for the drain, but there can be joy and love in the midst of it <laughs> as you as you make a beeline for the drain. Another line I wrote down when he's uh, at the bar with Susan Tyrell uh-huh. and, and she writes... Um, uh, I don't know who, what she was talking about exactly, but I wrote it down. She goes, everybody has a right to live their life. So screw everybody. <laughs> like, yeah. And, um, you know, and she was just this romantic, this broken romantic. And then I love her relationship with Earl, her, oh, her yeah. lover. And then she talks about how hard it is to be interracial, you know. Oh, because uh-huh. like Earl had a... <clears throat> you know, beat up a guy that must have said something to them and he got sent to jail. And then he, she tells Billy, oh, you know, he goes, where's your man? She goes, he's in jail. And he goes, why? And she goes, because they won't leave you alone in this world. Um, anyway, it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful film. And I mean, Gardner's dialogue is just so good. Later, she says, I've never been ashamed of the act of love. This is right after she said she had been raped by... Right. I love her, but I've never been ashamed of the act. I wish I could do her voice. People should, if they can't see the movie, there's a, some clips of her on YouTube. I mean, just her voice and her face. It kind of reminded me of Juliet Messina and Lestrada. There was a there uh-huh. was a quality of, I I don't know, of seeing the whole world in one woman's face. But she goes, I've never been ashamed of the act of love. I'm not talking about free love. I have no use for that. I'm talking about love, real love, <laughs> not sex. And then just a few moments later, like he's sort of picked her up and they're walking down the street and she's kind of crying and her face is like this tragic clown's mask. I think that's what made me think of Juliet Messina. It's like half smile, half tears. And then she goes, I love you so much, you know, and they've just more or less kind of just met. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a tremendous movie. Yeah, and, and, and they, uh, in the way that they, uh, sort of in that barfly sort of way where, hmm. you know, she's, I love the motif of the box. She's with Earl. Right. They're both a couple of drunks. Earl moves out, but he's got his box of shit, his clothes in the apartment. And Stacy Keach, like you said, basically just meets her. And you can tell right away that they're going to move in as codependent alcoholics. And that's going to be sort of a wreck of a relationship. And then before you know it, he comes back and his shit is in a box and Earl's there again. <laughs> yeah, no, and Earl is so wise, you know, he like, you don't don't come around here anymore. But then he's like, hey, you had a fight? And then they almost talk like friends. And then Oma's uh-huh. given, you know, and again, this is where it's cinema, like where she pops her head out of the doorway in the bed, like there she is, our last glimpse of like this radiant, well, <laughs> I mean, radiant sullied star and not like a movie star, but just like a star in the cosmos. And she goes, oh, look at him. Look at that bum or whatever she says. And then she disappears. And then he sort of closes the door, steps out, Earl does, and talks to Stacy and goes, don't mind her, you know. And then he talks about how she's a juice head. And Stacy goes, I know. And and then uh, and then Stacy goes, and uh, she won't eat either. You know, they're almost sort of talking about how they tried to both care for her, you know. Uh-huh. And it's kind of sweet. They sort of bond and... And then Earl goes, yeah, that's an account of her unhappy life. And I don't know. I guess I, 
I've had so many confused and tormented relationships and um, and not very good at them, but I don't know, just sort of being in the throes with somebody, I, I, I guess I identified and, and, and I really makes me want to be her boyfriend. And I love the meal Stacy Keach makes for you, like throws a piece <laughs> of meat on a grill and it looks like really good to me. And like, she sort of uh -huh. crawls out of her hungover bed and she starts eating it. And then of course they start fighting and she's like a child and I don't know. It's uh it was very rich. Yeah, I think he just dumps uh peas straight from the can onto the plate. <laughs> yeah. But he tried. And that was his idea of caring for. Her. I know he was yeah. caring for her and it was I mean it, it's easy to have a cynical eye when you see a movie about these sort of daytime bar drunks, but there is a a poetic quality to it and there is a love uh a really kind of rich love that they have even like as ships passing in the night that was sort of real yeah yeah no they and they were kindred spirits and 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 stacy keach was so good in the role and when he sidles up to her at the bar and goes i i like you you know i mean and mm -hmm. he did and uh you know but it's yeah, I I I finished watching it this morning because I um, was having computer issues, and so it's still resonating with me. Those characters felt very alive, um, and I and I was reading a little bit about Susan Tyrell. I mean, what a interesting actress. I, yeah. I don't know how the rest of her career was perceived or what was thought of her, but it seemed like she. I don't know, towards the end, things were tragic perhaps for her. I saw something about maybe her legs were amputated and she was in Austin, yeah. Texas. And, you know, um, but anyway, well, one thing working with Stacy Keach, which I got to, like I said, twice, and uh, he's just so interesting and, and such a powerhouse and has many great stories. He was sort of talking about a movie he had done with Orson Welles and, how I think Orson Welles was either drinking between takes or smoking between takes and um, was playing a judge. We'd have to figure out what film it was. And then, um, and I think he set his judge robe on fire because he was smoking between takes. And I guess he began to shout, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. And so the people had to come rushing over and put the fire out. I'm, I'm not doing this story justice, Stacy. He <laughs> might have said something more interesting than I'm on fire. Maybe he said it very calmly. Um, I think that might have been what was interesting about the story. That sounds like a very Orson Welles thing to do, actually, yeah. to be very calm about it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think there was a calmness. All right, so um, Susan Terrell nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this. Uh, it was shot, you mentioned the cinematography, so I want to give the late, great Conrad Hall, his due, uh, one of the great legendary cinematographers of all time, mm. shot mm. the movie. Mm. And you might find this interesting. I did try to look up a little trivia. Um, it, it, he initially, John Huston, wanted Marlon Brando to play the part of, uh, of Tully, but he wanted more and more time to think about it. And John Huston took that as a bad sign that he wasn't mm. all in. Mm -hmm. And so he cast a very... Uh, young and little-known Stacy Keach, with I think uh, I think was definitely the right move there. Yeah, I mean Stacy Keach has a, a Brando quality. I think maybe mm -hmm. you know 
if it had been Brando, I wonder if we would have been so distracted that it was Brando, even even at that point in his career. Probably. Though I yeah. think, and I, he might have been in 72, I'm wondering if Brando was maybe just getting a little too old for the character because he's supposed to only be 30 years old. And you know how the world has changed you know, people say 30. So the 30 then is kind of like 45 now, you know, but uh-huh. um, yeah. somehow whatever's happening to time and vitamins and nutrition and climate change, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> and, but yeah, Stacy and, yeah, and just the way he was balding and his face, but he, but there was a, you could, you believed him as a boxer um, or a sort of failed boxer. Um, but yet so many interesting people associated with that film. I, I, I'm not the film person that you are, but Ray Stark was the producer. Chris Christopherson uh-huh. provided the, like an original opening and closing song. Marvin yeah. Hamlish was, you know, the composer. Um, you know, I mean, just a lot of incredible people come together in that film. Yeah, um, and you have a little history with boxing yourself, right? I mean, I know you have to because you've included it. Uh, our friend John Hodgman, in fact, was in a hmm. boxing scene in Bored to Death, very yeah. famously. Yeah. So what's, what's your love of boxing about? Um, yeah, I've had my own long, odd history with boxing. I, As a kid, I, I sometimes would watch on a little black and white TV. I somehow would get these fights, and my great aunt felt that I was – my grandfather, whose name was Nuchum, that I was somehow reincarnated a little bit with him. And I guess he had loved boxing. And and then to me, it was always romantic and heroic. And so I began fooling around with the sport in the early 90s in New York, going to a gym in Times Square. And ultimately, this led me to having a boxing match in 1999. I fought as the Herring Wonder because I saw myself as a reincarnated Lower East Side Jewish boxer who would gain uh-huh. his strength from eating a lot of herring as well as having <laughs> herring breath in the ring to further repel my opponent. And I had also uh, had boxed a man in a hotel room before this match, like someone I'd met on some kind of phone sex line that was very cheap because it wasn't heterosexual, which would be my general direction. And so I had boxed some guy at a boxing fetish, so I had boxed him in a hotel room. I, I wrote an essay about it. It's in one of my books. I'm not sure which one. And I would tell that story on stage about boxing this guy in a hotel room. And I kind of won that little fight because I hit the guy, and then he <laughs> gouged his hip in a dresser in in the little <laughs> hotel room. We were in, like, one of those rent-a-rooms for, you know, an hour for $30. And because he gouged his hip, you know, like when you bang your shin against something— he quit mm-hmm. after that, and um, he was naked during the fight. I wasn't. I was very self-conscious. <laughs> and that was when I realized why boxer shorts are called boxer shorts, because I was in my boxer shorts. I'm like, oh, my God, they're like boxer shorts. And anyway, the shorts of a boxer. So uh-huh. anyway, this guy challenged me to a fight in 99, and he was a performance artist downtown known as the Impact Addict. And he had jumped off this theater called PS122, this converted schoolhouse, dressed as Maria von Trapp. He le- leaped off like four stories into, he, he, he saw himself as the evil Knievel of the East Village. And he shot himself out of a cannon into watermelons. He was a real, had a death wish. And he'd also uh-huh. had several amateur uh, boxing matches. And we were friends 
His name is David Leslie. So he challenged me to a fight, and I insanely took the fight. And at the time, I was writing a column for the New York Press, downtown New York, and we staged this enormous match uh, where, where we had a huge undercard. You know, uh, there were two lesbian gladiators. The guy who had famously dr- uh, jumped in front of Bob Dylan, Michael Portnoy, called Soybaum, uh, who oh, had yeah. written Soybaum on his chest, he fought five five-year-olds because at the time he was 25, <laughs> and he put a thing in Backstage <laughs> magazine. And all these mothers showed up with these kids like in tutus, not quite knowing what they were getting involved in. And we fought in this converted synagogue um, called Angel Ornsons off of Houston Street. We had like 600 people there. Matthew Barney was one of the judges um, because he knew David Leslie. And But the thing is, a week before the fight, I got my nose broken training. So I fought with a broken nose. And then I took, kind of like Tully, I took a massive beating in front of 600 people um, <laughs> in this beautiful ring. The, the guy, uh, it was actually streamed on the internet in 1999. It was one of the first things ever streamed because one of the sponsors of the fight was this guy um, uh, who founded this company called Pseudo.com. And later there was a documentary about him called We Live in Public. Um, and his name was Josh something. I'm blanking on it, which if he hears this, he would be outraged. But it was actually streamed on the internet about the size of a postage stamp because that's like whatever <laughs> bandwidth, you know. And uh-huh. there was supposed to be two-minute rounds, but the guy, the timekeeper, was a punch-drunk guy from where I was training, which was at Gleason's. And I was training with, again, film reference, with a guy because I'd seen a documentary called On the Ropes, which was, I think, Oscar-nominated or may have won the Oscar. And it was about this uh, trainer and the people he was training in Bed-Stuy. So he became my trainer. And the rounds were supposed to be two minutes, so eight-minute fight. But the guy was from Gleason's Little Punch Drunk, did three-minute rounds, which is more like pro-level duration for a round. So I took a 12-minute beating, already had a broken nose, got the nose rebroken. And I kind of looked like Jeff Bridges after the first fight, you know, in the film. Uh-huh. Like yeah. the next day, my face was like, I was, I looked like the Elephant Man or Eric Stoltz <laughs> in that movie. I forget what it was called. Um, yeah, mask. So, and What's that? The mask? mask. Yeah, that's, that's what uh-huh. I looked like. And for like a week or two. And then, oh, here's an interesting film thing. So then about... Four or five weeks after the fight, I get over it. I sort of write my column late that night because I'd been writing about the fight. I was worried about my brain. Um, I go to Cuba for the Havana Film Festival. I go there legally through Jamaica with a friend of mine, a director, a filmmaker named uh, Jay Ananaya. had a film there, and the star of his film was uh, Andrea De Stefano, who has become uh, has a very successful director and actor himself. And he knew Cuba. I'm sorry if this is all over the place, but because he had played Javier Bardem's lover in uh, Before Night Falls, uh, the Schnabel movie. So anyway, we all go to Cuba. We get an apartment. We're hanging out. I still had like a little bit of a black eye. And I'm walking up the, the steps to the Hotel Nacional. And I, was, I think I was drunk. It was the middle of the day. And which is this beautiful hotel right on the Caribbean, famous, you know, uh, hotel and this guy stops me and goes, are you Jonathan Ames, the fighter, the herring wonder? And I go, yes, <laughs> I am. He goes, I saw your fight. You were amazing. That other guy was an asshole, but you were great. Well, I got to go. I got to get in this tour bus. I'm like, okay, bye. 
I'm like, holy cow, I'm like recognized as a boxer in Cuba. I mean, it really felt like right straight out of 1957, you know what I mean? Some boxer who's headed to Cuba, he's on a bender. And I felt so proud of myself. Well, it turned out the guy on the steps was the director, Darren Aronofsky, because he had been at my fight. A lot of people in downtown New York ended up at that fight. Um, Todd Solons was there, the writers Uh Colson Whitehead and Jonathan Lethem. Anyway, then... Eight years later, I got challenged by a publishing house to fight a Canadian writer who had written a book about boxers, and they wanted him to fight someone for publicity. And I thought I would never fight again, you know, broken nose, no insurance. So anyway, I ended up fighting this writer who outweighed me by quite a lot, was like 12 years younger. I won't go into the whole thing. And we had an amazing match, which I actually won. Very sweet guy. I'm blanking on his name. Oh, Craig Davidson. My See, that's the problem when you... A boxer, you you know, remember uh-huh. things. But um, <laughs> anyway, I kind of recreated that whole thing in Bored to Death, where Jonathan oh, okay. had the Jonathan character played by Jason Schwartzman had to fight a writer played by John Hodgman. I then also did boxing again in uh, Blunt Talk, where Patrick Stewart's own son played the character's son, and he's a boxer who's got to throw a fight. And we shot that in L.A., and that may have been why I looked at Fat City for the first time, Uh you know, just one more way to shoot boxing scenes. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've done boxing in both my TV shows and, uh, and have fought twice myself. I'll never fight again at the moment though. I am studying (laughs) jujitsu, uh, which I'm enjoying. Oh man. I'm so glad I asked you about boxing. Okay, sorry that, that was, was a long riff. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was a true Jonathan Ames moment, which was thrilling. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect, whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. 
To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee, sounds perfect. All right, so we finish up here with five questions, and you can be as brief as you want with these. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the first movie you remember seeing in a theater? Um, I think it was, for some reason, Walkabout. Like it was night. Oh, there okay. were two films we saw in the theater that day. That's right. My mom took me a double feature. I wonder if she was like hiding from my dad or something. We saw Planet of the Apes, which I loved, uh-huh. and Walkabout. Okay, that's great. Uh, do you remember the first R-rated movie that you saw? Um, no. I feel I feel like Animal House. I remember seeing that when I was like maybe thirteen or twelve. Mm-hmm. Loving that. I don't know if that was R-rated. Uh, it was okay. That that was an early, very you know, made a huge impression on me. And then there was that Robert Redford movie, like in 1980, um, with Timothy Hutton playing a very troubled young man. I forget what it was called. Oh, uh, the ordinary people. Yeah, ordinary people. So I don't know if that was yeah. R-rated, but that that might have been one of the first. I don't know, like mature movies that I saw that I'm like I'm like that young man. I'm very depressed. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't know that's so much R-rated, but R-rated uh, in terms of advanced emotions. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, number three, will you walk out of a bad movie? I have never done that. Um, yeah, I've never walked out of a movie. I I don't go to movies quite as much as, you know, it used to be such a big part of life. I, I probably would go to a movie once a week. And somehow going to theaters... I, I'm part of some national curve, and also maybe the movies have changed so much. But, um, but yeah, I'm never, I'm not one of these people that walks out, and I never have. Okay, number four. Uh, I usually kind of rotate questions here, but mm. is there a a movie universe that you would like to live in? Um, well, I kind of like, you know, the Fat Cine universe, like stopped in 1971. Mm-hmm. I'd sort of like to live in one of those hotels and be in a sort of barfly relationship and cook a steak on a pan like that. I also, uh-huh. it, it might be silly, but I also like Blade Runner. I like, you know, the Harrison Ford. Like, I'd like to live in that world maybe. Or, yeah, you know, um, uh, yeah. So, but then Pandora, I don't know. Is that, wait, no, what was it right. called? Is that the James Cameron Pandora? I get it confused yeah. with the music streaming thing. I, th- um, I think that's correct. But I like, yeah, I like lots of worlds. But I, I think just having seen it, I, I'd like to be in 1971 Stockton. No cell it. phones, Our- no internet, <laughs> yeah. you know, just, uh-huh. I don't know. Time to think. All right, and number five, uh, Movie Going 101, when Jonathan Ames goes to the movies... Uh, where do you sit? What kind of concession stand rituals do you have? Uh, I tend to sit a little bit back, but in the middle, uh, and you know everything's stadium, but I or or near an edge because I don't like want to be boxed in. But towards the middle of the theater, I do like to get popcorn. I mean, most of the popcorn's pretty deadly. It's like you're basically putting a salt stick in your mouth, and mm-hmm. it sort of makes you sick. But I do like the popcorn, and oftentimes I'm starving for whatever reason. So just popcorn, middle of the theater, I think tend towards the edge, though, so I can, I don't know, uh, extend my legs. Escape. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was great, man. I really appreciate your time. Uh, if you can end 
uh, sit back from the mic and end with a hairy call. I know that everyone is dying to hear what this sounds like. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna uh, go back. I'll, should I do three of them? I tend to do them in threes. Do three. Okay. All right, here we go. And I'm doing it from a seating, seated position, those of you in the audience, uh-huh. just so you, it makes it more impressive. And I have to put my hands in a certain way. If people go on the oh, yeah. internet, they could find pictures of it. Anyway, but it's almost like I'm extending a tube from my right hand to my left hand. Anyway, uh-huh. so let me take a sip of water first. So this is the uh-huh. Harry Call, uh, the sound my friends and I would make on the playground when being attacked by more normal children. And just to remind the listener, the original sound where it all came from was and then it grew into this. Okay. <clears throat> so those Thank are three hairy so calls. Much. I think there's a dog in the building that started barking. <laughs> I think I I hear that dog. That's great, man. I appreciate it. Oh, well, so nice to meet you again across the country through the the cables. All right. You take care, Jonathan. Okay. You as well. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Another one in the can. Uh, That was... That went better than I hoped it would go. It's always a little weird when you're not in the same room and you can't see someone else and react to them. But uh, I think it went pretty well. And just to be able to sit and listen to that guy uh, talk to me for 45 minutes, and especially the end when I got him talking about his boxing days and the weird, weird story that he went off on. It was just wonderful. Uh, That was a true Jonathan Ames moment. And I'm glad that I was uh, able to get that and that you all were part of that as well. So... Uh, I hope we en- enlightened you to the movie Fat City. Go check it out. Very, very good flick. And I hope you enjoyed the Harry call at the end. How that man does that with his voice is uh, something to behold. Look it up on YouTube if you want to see how he stands there uh, and does it sort of like an archer firing an arrow over a castle wall. So thanks to Jonathan Ames. And his new movie comes out today, actually. Uh, lucky timing there. It is called You Were Never Really Here. It is the Lynn Ramsey movie that she wrote and directed based on Jonathan Ames' uh, novella of the same name, starring Joaquin Phoenix as a um, as an Iraqi war veteran who is clearly suffering through PTSD, whose job it is now is to go and find uh, bad men who deal in child sex trafficking and take care of them with a ball-peen hammer. Uh, if that sounds rough and tough and... Hard to watch, it is, but it's a great movie. If you like movies like Taxi Driver, it echoes that for sure. So go check out You Were Never Really Here. Uh, buy Jonathan Ames's books and support that man's career because he is a national treasure. And until next time, here's some practical advice. Why don't you go get the three seasons of Bored to Death and watch them all this weekend? It's a great way to spend your time. scored by Noel Brown from our podcast studio at Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, 
fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions... Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.